heard some of this morning's text from the Old Testament as we lit our Gaudate candle. It comes from the word of the prophet Isaiah, the 35th chapter. These words are written to the community of Israel after they have been exiled from Jerusalem, after they have lost everything that they had hoped in. Now the prophet lifts up these words. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom. And like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. A desert. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, because they will have been made clean. It shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray from this road. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. And our New Testament text comes to us from that well-known story in the second chapter of Luke's Gospel. The shepherds are out in the fields keeping watch by night. But the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. One of you recently pulled me aside and asked, when did we change the prayer in our bulletin that begins worship from a prayer of confession to now a prayer of adoration and praise? I was surprised that she said something, although we changed it three months ago. She was the first one to at least tell me that they noticed. I sort of smiled sheepishly. And then she said, and besides, we changed the responsorial hymn that we sang from the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, to the Alleluia. If you look at your bulletins, you see what we did. She said, then you inserted this little sort of prayer, silent prayer of confession. Why'd you do that? Well, I said, uh, around rally day, we were talking about in the staff uh, worship, and some people on the staff had said that they had spoken with some of you who said you felt like that worship at Riverside was not joyful enough, that it seemed dirgy and, and, and sort of dark and depressing. And so we thought, well, what can we do to insert in some way to insert some joy and to build up a sense of more of joyfulness. And one of us came up with the idea, well, it might just be the prayer of confession. When everybody comes in and, and begins to say out loud what it is that we're really guilty for, it's just such a downer. So maybe we ought to, instead of doing it collectively, let's just do it privately 
and instead insert a prayer of adoration and praise. And then Lois said, okay, well, we don't really need the Kyrie then if we're not doing out loud the confession. I'll find an alleluia response, and that's how it came about. This person looked and said, well, you know, the transitions don't really work. I had to agree. In a way, I think we're missing something, and that's what I would like to share with you today. Is joy something that we point to that we should expect in worship? Yes. In fact, not only just worship, but in all of life. If you've ever read the Westminster Catechism, you know that the first question, what is the chief end of man or humanity? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. So in fact, joy is a goal of worship. But is it the point of worship? I think it's more the byproduct of worship than the point. For I think the point of worship is to praise God, to give ourselves over in praise and gladness to God and life. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God. Therefore, we will enjoy God forever. Apparently, folk who are in the know, sociologists and so forth, say that in our culture, in the American culture, we are having a diminished sense of joy in our lives. They look at all the reasons why. Is it the increase in technology? Is it uh, more awareness of violence and threat and terrorism? Uh, Whatever the case may be, apparently joy has been dropping in our culture. And it's such an issue in the church, they say, Uh, that John Templeton, who was a great investor of Presbyterian, has uh, given several million dollars to uh, the Yale Center for Faith and Culture to study the issue of joy and Christianity. They're asking the question, what is joy? They're wondering where joy might be found. Uh, They're trying to help us understand why there's less joy now in our lives than before. In fact, I've done a sort of informal survey of four people that are close to me and ask, on a scale of one to ten, what would you say uh, is your sense of joyfulness? And from all four, I got back the biggest hedge you have ever seen. One, it took six different messages for me to finally get a number. I got, well, what do you mean by joyfulness? And you mean now or yesterday or last year or and what I got finally was a sense that we're all sort of hovering on the positive side of five but we're not really way up there near ten so I asked them what would it take for you to be more joyful and two of them said you're the preacher you tell us (laughs) the Templeton Fund has done research to at least come up with a definition of what it means. It's an emotion, they say, but I don't like that word. Okay, they know more than I, but my problem with emotion is that emotions tend to rise and fall. I would like rather to think of joy and joyfulness as a state 
of being, a state that, that exists no matter the circumstances. And yes, you can be joyful even in the midst of great loss and grief. They say that joy is an excessive, an excessive emotional awareness of gratitude and gladness and hope beyond our imagining. And then they quote that great passage, The eye has not seen nor the ear heard what God has prepared for those who are open to it. When we encounter God's presence in our lives, it is meant to bring us joy, at least. It is the normal response to life, just as when a child who comes home from school finds out that her parents have arranged for all her friends to be gathered there for a surprise birthday party. Ah, that a moment of joy and gleefulness is, in fact, the experience that we are meant to have in our relationship with God. Now, this is not happiness. I'm not talking about happiness. Happiness is like a mud puddle, three feet wide and one inch deep. Happiness can be found through entertainment and power, and when the Jaguars win, happiness is, in, in a way, sort of self Maybe that's why there's not a lot of happiness around these days. <laughs> happiness tends to be self-centered. It's about me and my sense of happiness, as if I have some right to that, which, in fact, we do, according to the Constitution, where Thomas Jefferson wrote in, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's probably nothing more American, in fact, than our own individual right and search for our own happiness. I'm not talking about that. Because happiness doesn't really have an object except ourselves. Joy, however, has an object. It's, the object of joy is the something or someone that breaks in on us and brings us joy. Happiness, you can, you can buy, you can hold, you can manufacture. Joy is something really that breaks in on us. Joy finds us. It's not so much that we find joy. We can put ourselves in places and positions where joy is more accessible, but in the end it comes as gift. And what it comes to us through, of course, is relationship. Relationship with each other. Relationship with nature. A sunset. Joyful. Relationship with the arts. Tell me you don't hear or sing the Alleluia Chorus without feeling joy. Relationship with God, of course. And even relationship with ourselves. Joy always comes to us from an other, especially the holy other, God. It was William Blake who said, He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. That is to say, it flies away. You cannot hold it tight. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. And joy like grace has its, then its own freedom about it. And it comes to us as gift. As I said, we can condition ourselves to be open 
to open our gates for its entrance. And one way we do that is especially through worship when we gather together in relationship. In fact, the Bible understands joy to be so powerful that not only do we shout out in glee, but so do the cedars of Lebanon that bend back and forth in absolute laughter. And so do the hills that clap their hands. And so do the de- does the desert that grows forth like a crocus. It, it springs forth new life. All of creation, all of nature rejoices when joy exists. As in 96.11 of the psalm, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, let everything in it exult. Or in this morning's text, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom, then the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, and the lame, all will be restored. I don't know if you've noticed in all of this that there is this future tense associated with it. Then, when God restores the fortunes of Israel, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Then the highway will be set forth. Then the hills will be made low. And we say the same thing. When the Messiah comes again, then all of all that has been lost will be restored. It is an eschatological hope, we call it in seminary. We're always pointing forward to the then when God will finally do what God has promised to do, and there will, in fact, be peace over all earth. No more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, no more loss. Then. And there is joy in that. Before credit cards, my mother used to go to the store and put things on layaway. Some of you can remember that. She had joy the moment she put it in layaway, although she had not yet claimed it. She had to wait until she got more money. And in this way, we have joy as we look toward the future of God's eschatological promise. But, if we just stay there, it ends up being pie in the sky by and by. There is is a wonderful gift of that, yes, for those who are in the midst of great suffering and hardship. To have a future full of joy is a great hope. But when you turn it around and say that that is the only way that joy is found, It is the same thing that ISIS does when they tell their disciples that if you commit a suicide act in the name of Allah, then you will experience the great joy and gifts you will find in heaven. So it's not just then, it's also now. The joy that is expected of us is present now, and where it is found is in the kingdom of God kingdom of God. This is the day the Lord has made, we say, in our calls to worship. Not tomorrow, today. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Or Paul writes in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice now, not then. 
It's found in the kingdom of God. Luke explains the kingdom of God in the 15th chapter of the gospel in three parables. The first is like a shepherd who lost a sheep and went by and by all over to find it. And when the sheep was found, the shepherd rejoiced, threw the sheep on his shoulders, brought him back to his village, and then threw a party like it was 1999 so that all the relatives and all the family could rejoice with him. Or the kingdom of God is like a woman who lost an important coin. She searched everywhere for it. And when she finally found it, she rejoiced and invited all her friends over for coffee, cake, and tea so that they could rejoice with her. The third parable, you know, as a father had two sons. And the youngest son took his inheritance and skedaddled and spent it on wine, women, and song. And when he finally came to himself, he came back home He was restored back into his father's graces. He came back. His father ran off the porch, embraced him as fully as as he could, no questions asked. That moment of incredible joy was so great that his father decided to kill the fatted calf and invite everybody that wanted to come into the party. And what that was about, of course is the restoration of broken relationships between God and us and each other and even ourselves. Two things kill joy, at least in my experience. The first is taking myself way too seriously. Once I become serious about myself, then I start being responsible for everything and everyone. In fact, I start playing like I am God. It is basically proud behavior. It is proud-based. And once we become proud, you cannot have joy. The second thing that gets in the way of joy is guilt. We Presbyterians wear guilt better than anybody in the world Grounded in that Puritan, puritanical work ethic, if we're not saving the world, then we are not worth saving. But that kills joy. Because in both cases, what it does is it undermines the very premise about which joy is found. It is found in the promise of God that we have been now restored into relationship with the ground of our creator, period. There's nothing we can do, there's nothing we have done, there's nothing we will do that will undermine that restoration. That's the promise. And that promise, you see, is found in this one we call the Christ. That's why the angel says, joy is to you. And then in that way, pointing down the road to the crucifixion of Christ, where ultimately at the foot of that cross, true joy is to be found. There's a text in Hebrews that says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus Christ endured the cross. The cross as joy? Yes. Because it is the symbolic and historical promise to us that we now 
are in God's good graces. And that all of the brokenness between ourselves and God has been restored, and the brokenness between ourselves and each other has been restored, and that guilt thing in us that we carry around has been wiped out. Somebody came up to me at the 8.30 service and said, Golly, I wish I could just believe that. I mean, if we could only have a pill for it, we could, like, give everybody a prescription. But it seems to me that we, we already have a prescription. It's called coming to worship. Where, whether we say it or not, one of the first things we do is to open the gates on our own sinfulness and receive there the forgiveness and love of God and the promise that we are here now because we have been restored. Joy to the world, the Lord is come.